Welcome to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. We speak with writers, thinkers, and newsmakers on the controversial issues of human life and human thriving that impact our daily lives. We are exceptional as creatures in the cosmos, as equal members of the human family, and as ethical beings. Humanize explores some of the fundamental questions. How do we thrive? How do we live well and care for what we've inherited? How do we act responsibly with one another and in the wider world? And how do we conserve the good things of this life for the future? We matter. Our actions matter. Let's get into it. I'm Wesley J. Smith, and this is Humanize. One of the great joys of my career in public advocacy was that it provided the opportunity to meet and become close friends with the world-famous novelist Dean Kuntz, and I am thrilled to welcome him to Humanize. Dean really needs no introduction, so I'll make his brief. Dean Kuntz's novels are many things, incredibly entertaining, superbly suspenseful, often bitingly satirical, and sometimes very funny. But they are also deep and thoughtful, focusing in a fictional format on the importance of human exceptionalism and the virtues that lead to a life of righteousness. Dean was born and raised in Pennsylvania and graduated from Shippensburg State College, now Shippensburg University. When he was a senior in college, he won an Atlantic Monthly Fiction Competition and has been writing ever since. Fourteen of his novels have risen to number one on the New York Times hardcover bestseller list, making him one of only a dozen writers ever to achieve that milestone. His books are published in 38 languages, and he has sold over 500 million copies to date. Dean is also a committed philanthropist and dog lover, and an all-around good guy. Dean, welcome to Humanize. Well, thanks for having me there, Wesley. You know, we've known each other for a long time. And uh, I know the answer to this, but I think many of the listeners to our podcast will want to know, what got you into writing and how did you know this was your destiny? Well, it's, it was a mystery to me how this happened for many years. I was raised in a family where there were no books. Uh, wow. Books were considered a waste of time. Uh, I can remember my mother being upset with me even at the age of 10 or 11. My mother was a great human being. My dad was the town drunk. That's another story. But uh, she would get upset with me because I was always reading, uh, going to the library at 10, 11 and getting books. And she would say to me, we, you, you need to spend your time in a better way. You learn, need to learn how to fix a car, how to hunt, how to do all these other things. Because uh, if you ever can afford a car, uh, you're not going to be able to afford a mechanic. So you have to know how to fix it. And my attitude was, I just have to get successful enough to be able to afford the services of a mechanic, uh, because I'm never going to know how to fix the car uh, or how to use a screwdriver, as far as that goes. And uh, so I was reading at a young age, probably from about seven or eight, and I was writing by the time I was eight. I was writing stories on tablet paper, drawing the cover, binding them with electrician's tape and staples, and peddling the relatives for a nickel. 
I was publisher, editor, agent, writer, uh, all things in one. Uh, and then by the time I got into, when I was last few years of high school, I had the same English teacher, Winona Garbrick, who uh, saw in me some talent for writing and encouraged it and was a great uh, mentor at that time in my life when I thought nobody cared about me. Uh, that's a, that's kind of the importance of a good teacher. And and before yeah. you became a full-time writer, you were an English teacher. Yes, I was. And it was uh, not necessarily the great one because I didn't love it like Winona did. I loved teaching. I loved the kids, but I hated the bureaucracy. I hated the administrative state that ran the system and uh, and thought it was destroying education. This was many, many years ago. Uh, but uh, let me I, let me interrupt you real quick because I, I had not heard the story about you being a your, a publisher of your own books when you were a child. I mean that kind of leads one to the thought of you know somebody is born to be something, and you're clearly born to be a writer. Do you do you agree with me on that? I, I think there is something to that. Yes, there is a is a sense that this was what you've been given to do. Uh, uh, and that's a subject I'd go back to in a minute or two, uh, because I think all of us are given something that we're exceptional at. And many of us fight against that for most of our lives because we want to be something else. Uh, I've seen that in so many people. Uh, but I think it also, I was about in my mid-30s when I one day it suddenly dawned on me where I got the idea that books were important or that books or stories could transport you out of the life you were living that was less than satisfying, which my life was in that household. And it was when my mother had to be in a hospital for six months, uh, and I couldn't be left with my father, who was utterly irresponsible. So I stayed with my mother's friend, Louise Kinsey, whose children had graduated high school. And Louise, every night, I was maybe three to four, I think I was four years old, and Louise would put me to bed in her son's former room, which was a very dramatic and interesting room with dormer windows and strange ceilings. And she would read a story to me while, she, while I ate a, a cherry ice cream soda. And I think that is where I started to identify storytelling in books with peace and with an escape from the vicissitudes of life, so to speak. And I think so it was important to have that person cross my life at a key time. But that doesn't mean I would have become a writer without the ability to do so. And so it's the world is an immensely mysterious place, and, uh, and we're guided through it, I think, uh, if we're willing to pay attention to the guideposts. Let's get into your career a bit. You're you're incredibly prolific. I mean, it's like every seems like every month there's a new Dean Koontz novel out. I know that's an exaggeration, but it's quite remarkable. How do you come up with your ideas uh, uh, and your plots? They come out of amazing places. You never know where they're coming from. Some of it is quite mystical. Uh, it, it's uh, it comes to you, and you know not from where. That's how the Odd Thomas series started. Sometimes it's as simple as, well, even this isn't simple, but I was coming home from a studio meeting and I was in an angry sort of mood, as you generally are when you're coming out of studio meetings on a project. <laughs> and I was in my uh, wife's uh, SUV and she had her 
these things aren't there anymore. But she had a six CD de deck on the, in the car and she had loaded into it Paul Simon and Simon and Garfunkel. We both are enamored of, of both of them, but especially of Paul Simon. And uh, this song came on called uh, Patterns. And there was a line, my life is made of patterns I can scare that can scarcely be controlled. And within about 15 minutes, I had the idea for a novel called Life Expectancy, which is one of my personal favorites of anything I've ever written. Uh, and how does that come to you? I don't know. I'm often asked, do you get ideas from dreams? And I used to say no. And then I've now had two, including the book I'm writing now. Woke up in the middle of the night and the idea was there and it was fully formed. Uh, you never know where they come from. And sometimes you cannot even begin to explain where they came from. And that is one of the most wonderful things about it. You have to sense that often when you're writing and often when the idea comes to you, that you're in, in link to some higher power that's simply working through you. And, uh, and you don't really deserve the full credit for this, but you'll take it anyway. <laughs> That's right. But it also keeps you from uh, too much pride, I would think. Yeah. there. Uh, I, I often say, uh, and I mean this sincerely, uh, talent is nothing you've earned. Uh, it, it's uh, If you're Elton John and you're five years old and you can sit at a piano and play note for note perfectly something you've just heard, that is a talent and gift. You didn't do anything to earn it. And I think my writing ability is a gift. What you, what you can do is the craft you bring to it, to hone it, to make it something better than mere uh, God-given talent. Uh, but, it's, uh, but when you understand that it's a talent you were given, and the only thing you've done has been, to some degree, wise enough to pursue it, uh, then... You can't, you can't say what a genius I am. You can only say with some humility, thank God I was given this because what else would I be doing? I wouldn't be prepared. But I do think you can, you can um, claim credit for not taking that for granted and working to make your craft better or your art better. Yes, that, that, and that's the joy of it, actually. Uh, it's the endless revising, rewriting thoughtfulness about it, research that you do on it, that leads you into the joy of it. Uh, and I think that comes from what we're being encouraged to do is commit in our lives to something that matters. Uh, and, uh, and when you commit to the 20, 30 drafts a page and to the research and to the thoughtfulness of it, that brings you a kind of joy and satisfaction doesn't come from the bestseller list and doesn't come from the royalty checks and is superior to both of them. That, that uh, brings me to uh, how much research you do uh, for your books. I remember reading the Jane Hawk novels, uh, which is about a, a, few, a woman FBI agent who uh, uh, comes across a, a nefarious a plot that I won't uh, describe because I don't want any potential readers who haven't read them to uh, have any spoilers. But there is a part of that book that really stunned me, and that was the ability of the government to track people and find people. And I remember wondering, is this real, or did Dean Koontz conjure that from his imagination? So, so was that real from your research? It was totally real. Uh, 
It's uh, most police cars and many government vehicles now for several years have been equipped with cameras that do a 360 degree scan and they are constantly scanning license plates uh, of all the vehicles around them. This information goes to uh, government archives and can be accessed. So uh, uh, there's a point where Jane Hawk is on the run, well, most of the series, and, <laughs> yes. uh, and she's, uh, uh, her license plate of the car she's in gets scanned going off and on an on-ramp and they know where she has been an hour ago. Uh, that is current technology. Most people are utterly unaware of this. I've always been fascinated with this and, uh, and, and the power that's in the state that can be used for evil. And, uh, and that makes me think of China because China is using those technologies to, th- to create what I think is the most sophisticated tyranny in the history of the planet. Yes, uh, a surveillance state beyond anything comprehended previously, uh, and it's it's uh, it's a very very scary uh, situation we're in right now because some of that has been adopted in our country, and uh, we've always had uh, sort of bulwarks against this, uh, and now they seem to be dissolving slowly and sometimes not so slowly. So, and that sometimes is a theme in your work, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would love people to wake up a little more. And I think people are waking up to what is happening and what it could mean for the future and why it's necessary to stand up against it in your personal lives and go to your school board meetings and go to your uh, county board meetings and and find out what's happening on a community level because it's filtering down to you from somewhere else. And that kind of also uh, dovetails into my next question. What do you see as the role of the novelist in society? Well, it's not, it's, I think it's two roles uh, to fiction. Uh, Well, there's more than two, but let's say basically two. And I do believe the first is entertainment. It's necessary because we need it. We need to be removed from the stress and pressures of our lives, uh, from the concerns and woe uh, of it all. Uh, And fiction can do that in a great way. But if that's all it does, then there's something missing in it. The second part is to talk about the world we live in and to reveal it in ways that I think just listening to the news, especially these days, or uh, standing around the water pool at work discussing what was on TV the night before does not bring you to what's really happening in the world or bring you to a place where you think about it in more than a casual sense. And I always go back to Dickens for this because there was no novelist more entertaining and yet no novelist who, let's say in A Tale for Two Cities, who got the truth of revolution so correct so it's the, it's those two things, but there's much more. Uh, I was going to say, if you miss the entertainment part, then it becomes like you're trying to force feed somebody a, a point of view. So it's kind of like a subtle interaction between the two, wouldn't you say? Yes. You don't want fiction to become propaganda. And the moment the fiction is selling a, a political view, uh, then it is propaganda and it's no longer fiction. Uh, it's no longer art, as far as I'm concerned. 
Uh, once in a while, I've had somebody say I'm selling a certain political view. I'm actually not. I get as angry with a lot of Republicans as I do with more Democrats. Uh, what I'm selling is is a a view of the world that used to be the rooted view of civilized society and is fading away from this. What I'm, what I'm arguing for are the values that allow us to have a civilized society and allow us to love one another and respect one another. And that's fading, uh, which is sometimes why I say, thank God I'm as old as I am. I don't want to see the world I think might be coming. We're going to get into that in a few minutes, but I wanted to ask first, um, has your writing changed over the years? Yes, it has. And it has to if you're really growing and changing as a human being. Uh, you uh, you start out with, well, I started out dirt poor. And so one of the key things is making a living. And so you're always looking at what will sell to some degree. Fortunately, I was able to stop doing that many, many years ago. And as soon as you're able to stop doing that and say, uh, okay, I've made quite a lot of money. Now, what are the other things that most interest me in this? And the entertainment value is still there, but the exploration of human values and human society and truth and the way it's distorted uh, becomes more interesting to you than other things. Uh, also, the the potential of the language becomes more and more interesting. Uh, I've always loved the English language, but the more I've used it to, sto- to tell stories, the more I've fallen in love with it, and the more I've found it to be flexible and fascinating in the uses that it can be drawn to. Uh, and so that all of those things then leads to a different kind of way of telling stories and a different kind of writer. So you're you're saying you you basically are are using different language than you used to use when you were uh, uh, a newer novelist and and trying to earn a living as well as uh, uh, write books. Yeah, it's some people go back and say, "Oh, I love phantoms. Why don't you write that something like that again?" Well, I can't. Uh, I've moved on from there. One of the great uh, things about the readership I've built over the years is how willing they are to move with me as I've tried different things and moved on, which is one reason I say to uh, writers and publishers, get rid of the old idea that you have to force a writer into writing the same book over and over or just staying within the same genre for for 30, 40 years because what people are really buying is the voice the voice of the writer, the attitude, the way of looking at the world. And they will continue to follow you if they like that voice. One of the things that I think distinguishes your novels from uh, perhaps other novelists is the humor. And uh, and I know that personally you're a very funny fellow too. Talk about humor in your work and, and why you think that's important. Well, when I first started introducing it, I was... <laughs> almost beaten physically by publishers who uh, <laughs> would tell me the, the common wisdom was that you can't write a novel meant to be gripping and suspenseful and whatever else, and then have humor in it. And I never understood that because I felt this is how we deal with life. Uh, we, we, we have to laugh or otherwise we die uh, inside, if not literally. 
And uh, so if the characters are humorous or they have a sense of humor, uh, then I think we relate to them better. Uh, I use humor also in villains to minimize their glamour, which is another way to use it. But initially, before writing and being known as suspense, I wrote a comic novel that all the reviews said was very funny. It didn't sell, and then everybody told me comic novels never sell. So for a while, I avoided that. But then I started introducing it much to the lament of my publishers at that time. But over the years, uh, it's one thing that's drawn uh, audiences to the books is that element of them, which I think enriches them. It doesn't diminish from them. And it makes the characters more human. And and I even find um, the humor in the villains most fun because that makes them not two-dimensional. I mean, these are people with twisted inner lives who are sometimes very smart and often very funny. And often they don't know they're funny. It's yeah. it's the very what I want. What I dislike in a lot of modern fiction is the glamorization of villains, uh, the Bonnie Clyde thing. Uh, yeah, they're glamorous. They're interesting, aren't they? Wonderful. No, they're thugs, uh, and I'm never going to do that. Uh, and I'm always aware there are people who are drawn to the glamour of the villains, and that can be distorting to their souls. Uh, so I want the villain to be pretty much unaware that he's unintentionally hilarious. He's He's got this, he's terrifying. And that's the thing I find interesting. He can be terrifying and funny at the same time uh, because he doesn't realize he's funny. And that comes from uh, the realization uh, that evil is stupid. Uh, evil works in the short run. It never works in the long run. Uh, and so when you commit to that, eventually the time comes when everything collapses for you, sometimes very quickly, but sometimes in a longer uh, period of time. And sometimes your villains do themselves in. <laughs> yeah, by their own stupidity. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you have a consistent theme, on the, uh, which of course rings my bell, on the importance of human exceptionalism. Uh, what? Why do you think that is important, and why do you put that in your novels? Uh, there's no civilization if we don't recognize human exceptionalism. Uh, we slide into, I, I don't understand what people think. Uh, first of all, let me put this. I know what a lot of people who, who want to shy away from the idea of human exceptionalism because they love nature and they love animals. It's human exceptionalism that encourages us to take care of animals and to yes. take care of nature in an intelligent way. And if we say humans are not exceptional, nature is has its rights. So that all animals, animals have certain rights not to be abused, but they they do not have rights in court of law, and rivers do not have rights. And if we start thinking that way, and we start conforming our law to that way, uh, then the strangest thing will be that we will not take care of nature or animals whatsoever. They will be allowed to be diminished um, by the people who wish to diminish them. And the law we've created will have no effect at all except diminish civilization. Uh, and we have to kind of come to grips, which we, we are a species with this responsibility. And we better carefully measure what that responsibility is and not surrender it. 
Yeah, yeah, we have duties, and that's that's an aspect of human exceptionalism uh, in addition to rights. And, and let me read something. Uh, you were very kind enough to write the foreword to my book, A Rat is a Pig is a Dog is a Boy. And since we're talking in this area, you wrote this, quote, ironically, the movement, which you're talking about the animal rights movement, as opposed and distinguished from animal welfare, Ironically, the movement to deny human exceptionalism has risen primarily, if not exclusively, in the Christian West. Its roots are in the desire to deny the roundness of creation and to force upon society a simple and intellectually hollow materialism that reduces nature to a machine lacking in mystery and reduces all the splendid, diverse creatures on the earth to one and the same thing, meat. It is a denial of the world's profound depth of meaning and sacred order. Like every other anti-democratic ideology, this one is by definition anti-human, and like anti-anti-human ideology, it ultimately deteriorates into a nihilistic bitterness that is anti-life, close quote. Expand on that a little bit. <laughs> that might be the best I could possibly have said. <laughs> I have time to think and craft that. Now I'm just chatting with you, but... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, that, I don't know if I can expand on that, but it's absolutely true. We're currently going... There, there, there's a theme in your books that goes along with that, that it's not... And you also talk about hope, and we're going to get into that aspect, but there's this kind of warning that I've noticed of, uh, of a threat of authoritarianism that comes from denying the unique dignity of human life, that, that there, sometimes it's even an aside of people in a restaurant talking and, uh, and someone says, you know, then there's an aside, like you can almost smell the gas from Auschwitz, you know, that kind of thing. Um, it, I, I think you're really concerned about that. Uh, deeply concerned. It's, uh, um, we, we're living in, strange, strange time where a lot of people with who are well-meaning are being herded into supportive things that are not well-meaning and that will, in fact, destroy nature. Uh, I, I talk about the windmill industry <laughs> at one point in the book I'm working on, which will require the strip mining of tens of millions of acres uh, uh, thousands of new landfills to to put these toxic batteries and toxic uh, resins that are used in the windmill blades that will do more damage to nature uh, than almost any technology in history. And that sounds the opposite of everything you're taught. It looks so nice. It'll all be coming from the wind. But all of those things, all the windmills are going to be built from fossil fuels that are being used extravagantly to build a technology that doesn't sustain. And that is going to be something we're going to have to deal with in a horrific way as it matures and proves to be a failure. Uh, and we're going to see species of birds disappear as they're chopped to death by all of this. And... I'm just looking at a time where people are not thinking things through uh, to their ultimate endpoint or their possible ultimate endpoint. And it doesn't mean you don't want to fix the earth. It means you better think about the right way to fix it and not just go along. Uh, all of this new technology we're being told is sustainable goes back to one thing, follow the money. There's going to be a lot of people that get very rich 
from this transition to this unsustainable technology. And then something else is going to have to come along to replace it. And it's also follow the ideology, isn't it? Yes, it's both. But I'm sorry, but ideology of of a certain type, uh, uh, the most passionate ideologies always at the end enrich the people at the peak of the ideology. And they know that, and that's why they craft that ideology. But a lot of people buy into it for generally what they think are moral reasons and don't know how they're being manipulated. So that's an issue I try to write about. Uh, but again, there's this, there's quite a number of people on our side or on each side of the issue that I would have problems with. Uh, going back to something else you said there uh, the, about human exceptionalism, uh, the, the reason I think behind it, behind the denial of it, goes back to Darwin and Freud and so much of what we've had to live with that has shaped our culture. And denial of human exceptionalism is simply one thing, a denial of the existence of God. Uh, And therefore, uh, it it gains power from those who do not want to believe there's anything special about us as a species because there's nothing special about creation. And yet at the same time, they want to preserve creation. It's the dichotomy is astounding, and at some point, yet it has to break down, and reason has to return to the debate. It's enough to give you whiplash. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you uh, one of the things I like about many things I like about your books, but you distinguish clearly um, in all of your books, actually, about the differing attributes of good and evil. And and sort of, it's almost like you're saying, this is how you can recognize good, and this is how you can recognize the temptation, let's put it, to evil. Is that something you think about in your work? Yes, quite a lot. Uh, yeah, sometimes, uh, even though I've been largely well-reviewed over the years, I'll from time to time get a review and say, well, here is a good and evil kind of setup. Uh, as if somehow that is a, a configuration of the real world that uh, is phony and fictional. But I'm sorry, the real world is an endless battle between good and evil. Uh, and uh, I think T.S. Eliot said the one thing that never changes, in all, everything changes, but the one thing that never changes is the perpetual battle of good and evil. And that is absolutely correct. Uh, so part of the thing in the book is to talk about uh, uh, in the books is to identify not in an in-your-face way, but in the behavior of the characters to help the reader or have the reader see what within uh, the antagonist of the story makes him unworthy, um, essentially. And the central thing about most evil uh, is the narcissism of it. Uh, it, it's it's all about me, uh, and when it's all about me, uh, by meaning the character, all about me, and in life, when you encounter people that it's all about them, uh, they have no capacity for feeling for other people that means anything, and uh, and that's uh, we have a lot of narcissism in the world we're now living in, in in a lot of people in high position. Do you think that? Um... Uh, 
it's certainly true in your novels. Do you think that's also true in, in the real world? Uh, that, of course, it, 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 in, in the novel, that can be a little more on the money, if you will, because most of us have subtleties. <laughs> we both, all, all of us have some of the narcissism, I think, unless you're a saint. But um, how much good versus evil do you think is in the world? Well, first of all, I would say we all have ego. Uh, yeah, but it hasn't shaded into narcissism in every case. Yeah. Every once in a while, each of us have uh, those little moments where we think we're the center of things. Uh, but if you actually have not let your ego be corrupted, uh, life will tell you with like slapping you in the face uh, very quickly that you're not the center of everything. Um, now I forgot what that question was. About the how much good and evil is in the world? Uh, Maybe it ebbs and flows, huh? It ebbs and flows. Uh, there's days I think it, uh, it's going toward the dark side and days I think there is hope the other way. Um, I think it may be the nature of the world. It, it, is, it is fairly evenly divided, uh, and that's why it is always a contest. Uh, uh, it depends on the will and the energy of the two contesting forces uh, about what which one is winning at any one time in history. Uh, but if you look at history, uh, good has triumphed more often than evil. And that goes back to what I said about evil is a short-term path to what you want. It may work for a while, but it doesn't work for a long time. Uh, and it... it it ends in disaster, uh, generally speaking. Uh, so this is a this is a good time to bring up a quote I found of yours that I really like. Yeah, and you you this, did this in an interview, said this several years ago. I want readers to feel that meaning. Therefore, hope is woven into the fabric of the physical universe. So you you do speak a lot in your novels about meaning, which and in this quote you're saying that the fact that there is meaning in the world, even though sometimes it may be hard to discern, that means ultimately there is hope. Uh, there certainly is meaning in the world. I have had numerous experiences in my life that are interesting and strange and. Uh, uh, signify something more than uh, just that nature and life is, is a complex machine. It's There's something more going on. That's one reason I've resorted to quantum mechanics to make certain points. Quantum mechanics shows us a world so strange on its deepest levels that you can't call it a machine. It's something more than that. There There is thought at the deepest level uh, when we start looking into the deepest level of subatomic structure. And uh, human awareness of an experiment can change the result of an experiment, meaning human thought has an effect on things. Uh, so if human thought has an effect on things, there is certainly some sort of greater thought, it seems to me, behind the whole workings of everything. Uh, and uh, that means hope. Uh, I see... Uh, uh, anytime I get down in life uh, over something that's going on, and I don't get down often, I'm a, I'm a disgusting optimist. <laughs> Even in the darkest moments, I see everything going to be pretty all right pretty soon. 
sometimes I'm off by a few years, but it shapes up anyway. Um, and uh, it's just so many moments in my life that things could have gone a very bad way. And it was the recognition of how they could have gone. And what you do to make sure they don't is it tells you there's hope in every moment. And that hope comes from your recognition that there is hope. Because if you think there isn't, you make no effort uh, to shape your life. Yeah, yeah, I could see that because you you would just become either depressed or perhaps as uh, nihilistic in the sense of even acting out and in, in, in what we would all say is an evil way, because the, if there's no hope, then what's the point? Mm-hmm. Uh, exactly. Hope has to lie at the center of everything you do. Uh, and you'll find out when it does. I mean, my life is so interesting that way in that I came from really deep poverty uh, there was no running water in our house until I was 11. Uh, the bathroom was outdoors. The kitchen sink had a hand pump. You had a pump to get uh, water into the sink. Uh, my father couldn't hold a job. Well, he held 44 jobs in 34 years. Uh, punched the boss out a lot and uh, not a career advancement move. Uh, <laughs> and yet, uh, everything that in my life where it could have gone very wrong, it went very right. Uh, It sometimes took a while, uh, but it was that hope, that allowance, that the world is shaped for happiness if you only embrace it. But the way you have to find it is through resisting the easiest path and things. That's interesting. Um, It's also the theme of your current book, The Big Dark Sky, uh, which I thought was terrific. And I'm not going to give any of the plot away, and I I do think readers should read it because it's really, really a fun and interesting book. But you explore the concept of synchronicity uh, in that book. What is that, and why did you decide to make that part of the story? Uh, The the word comes from uh, Jung, who uh, created the idea of synchronicity or developed the idea of synchronicity. The uh, coincidences that are astronomical, uh, that you look at them and say, that's not a coincidence. Uh, And his point was, and I don't buy into everything he thinks about synchronicity, but I also make the point in the book that synchronicity uh, is is very visible in quantum mechanics in much of what it talks about in the world. And that is the intricate connection of things that in life, we say, well, that was quite a coincidence. And often it was. And if we were to back up and look at all the steps, if we could, that led to that event, it would seem to be an astonishing coincidence. My point is that all, a lot in life is synchronicity. It just isn't an occasional amazing set of coincidences. It is fundamentally the nature of the world. And it isn't coincidence, it's patterns within the world that we basically generally don't recognize. And when you become alert to it, there's a lot of things in life that you go, look at that. How many things had to happen, this connection to that to another, before this this moment could have occurred? I I address this in a book called uh, From the Corner of His Eye, uh, which is a book about... uh, Uh, how human life uh, is exactly the same as the nature of the universe on the quantum level. Mm. Every action we take has multiple impacts we will never see. 
and that those impacts lead to this incredible web of cause and effect throughout the world that is astonishing to consider. And in quantum mechanics, uh, one of the things they talk about is an experiment being done in California and New York. And if the people in the labs know they're doing the same experiment at the same time on different coasts, what happens in one lab will affect the experiment in another. Or the, the thing that a lot of people have heard of, the flight of butterflies in Tokyo can affect the weather in Chicago. Uh, the world is intricately connected on the subatomic level. In a Newman relationships, it's the same thing. Uh, so uh, these are two books uh, from the corner of his eye and the big dark sky that in some ways link uh, and cover some of the same ground. Uh, and I have great fun writing both of them. Well, it's a really great yarn, I have to say. I really enjoyed it. Uh, my favorite Dean Koontz character, though, is Odd Thomas, who I just think is a remarkable character, a young man who can see ghosts. Uh, and I remember one of the times I laughed out loud is um, he sees LBJ getting on a bus, the ghost of LBJ, and LBJ's in a, uh, a surgical gown, uh, which is open at the back, and LBJ notices Odd and moons him. <laughs> And I remember laughing out loud about that. But the character of Odd is just a remarkable character because he starts as a good and, and virtuous, decent young man, and he grows from there. He grows in humility. He grows in selflessness. He grows in the desire to serve others. Talk about Odd a bit. Well, the first thing, it goes back to saying where ideas come from. And that is one of the ones that I can take no credit in a way for the existence of Odd, only for how I tried to develop him. Uh, I was working on a novel called The Face, and into my head came the line, my name is Odd Thomas, I leave, lead an unusual life. That had nothing to do with The Face. And, but I thought, Odd Thomas, what, what kind of character would have that name? And I turned to a legal pad I keep beside me, and I wrote the lines down, thinking I didn't want to forget that. And the next thing I knew, the first and last time this has ever happened, I started writing out a scene by hand. And I eventually filled up that yellow line tablet uh, in one day with a handwritten first chapter of the novel. Uh, I had to go on and finish the face and then go back and write Odd Thomas. Where that character came from is a mystery to me. It just flowed into me as if I was taking dictation. And when I got to him, uh, I realized when I went back to it that this is a character who is, as you said, uh, very sweet, very self-effacing, uh, very capable, however, and, and very realistic about the nature of evil in the world. But he's on a journey, and I realized in the first one that he was on a journey to absolute humility. And I thought, how the hell am I going to write that? Uh, because I have no idea what absolute humility is like. Uh, but Odd sort of taught me what it was like through the course of eight novels. And uh, I once had said I would never write a series of novels, but Odd Thomas changed that because he had so many places to go and so many things to comment on, and so much laughter in that series. Uh, they, they are, among other things, comic novels. And uh, Odd at some point says, uh, uh, humanity is a parade of fools, but I'm right up front with a baton. And uh, that's sort of the, one of the underlying themes of it is being part of the parade of fools without being subsumed by the foolishness of it. 
Also, the thing that drives odd uh, quite strongly is love. Mm. I, I don't mean, want to give anything away about the first right. book. But yes, uh, he loves easily, but not stupidly, uh, and, uh, and not frivolously. And uh, uh, he's, uh, he's, I think that's one of the things that has such appeal uh, for for him is, is the openness with which he expresses his feelings to others in a story uh, without being at any time soppy or sentimental. He is yeah. certainly anything other than that. He's also a great fry cook. Yes, he is. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I were. My wife wishes I were also. <laughs> Um, I also love your ancillary characters in your book, the supporting cast, if you will. They're often uh, very noble people, people who, you know, are um, just leading normal lives, not extraordinary lives, but they they rise to the occasion of an emergency. And they also often have very idiosyncratic personalities or sometimes people with disabilities, uh, even mental illnesses. Um, why do you, and I don't know of any other novelist who, who actually has such interesting ancillary characters, why do you use that technique? Because I've seen it again and again in your books. Well, uh, for, it happened in a couple of stages. First, uh, I, I felt that novels are filled with walk-on characters, uh, and I didn't want to do that. I thought, if you're really trying to portray life as, as it is, a lot of walk-on characters may have something to contribute. You don't have to give them uh, 50 pages. Maybe they'll have 10 instead of three. Uh, but if you give them interesting characters and interesting stories and integrate them more into the story than just conveying information, it becomes more like real life. Uh, and I've had resistance to that sometimes uh, when they'll say, why are we so much with this walk-on character? And I say, well, because they aren't walk-on. There are no walk-ons in life. That's that's just uh, some dramatic instrument that has been used in drama for time immemorial. I just don't really care to use it. Uh, and then I, I also, people said to me, uh, so many of your characters are eccentric. <laughs> and I said, you know what? Most of us are. Uh, yes. That's just human nature. Uh, you don't realize you're eccentric, I'm eccentric, all of us in one way or another, uh, some of us more than others. It's just part of writing people as they really are. But uh, then when I was um, getting involved with things like canine companions for independence that produce assistance dogs for people with disabilities, and you start meeting hundreds of people with severe disabilities, and uh, you find out that this uh, suddenly dawned on me. I like a lot of these people. I like their indomitable character. Uh, they they could give up, and they don't. And at least the ones who go for assistance dogs, they want to make the most of the li their lives as they can, and they do. And it's it's very uplifting to be around them. And I wanted to say, it suddenly dawned on me, I never see these people in fiction. And if you ever do see them in fiction, it's because the whole story is built around their disability and how they struggle with it. And yet I saw a lot of people with severe disabilities who don't, they don't let it become the struggle of their lives. They live full lives. 
So I wanted to start writing about those people because I thought they were interesting and they were never portrayed in fiction. So it's given me all this kind of colorful background characters and sometimes main characters, Leilani Klonk in uh, Wonder Away from Heaven, for instance, uh, or the, uh, uh, the autistic boy in Devoted, that enrich the story immensely because of who they are. And if I had never gone this way, I don't think the work would be as interesting as it is. Devoted, now that you bring that book up, was remarkable because you saw the interior life of a dog who had that had been uplifted um, into having a, a higher level of intelligence, but you also saw the incredible struggles of the autistic boy from the inside. That was a really interesting book. Uh, that was a, I've, I've done a couple of autistic uh, characters in, in books uh, at different points on the spectrum of autism. Uh, and uh, partly that came out of, uh, at some point, Canine Companions began to produce assistance dogs that were really, I think they call them socializing dogs, which were for uh, children with autism. And I saw a particular case, uh, I saw the film of this boy with his mother going through a supermarket uh, before he ever had an assistance dog. And his mother had to have him on a halter and a leash the boy because he was you know, so exuberant and uncontrollable uh, in, in the supermarket and grabbing things off shelves. And then he, he, he came to Canine Companions. They provided him with an assistance dog. You lived there for two weeks learning, your, in this case, his uh, mother, how to handle the dog. Uh, but this boy, by two weeks later, was sitting on the stage for two hours during the graduation ceremony and was no none of the bad behavior of autism. And it fascinates me that that human dog bond would have taken away. The boy is still autistic, but it gave the boy the comfort and the security to overcome the bad behavior that obviously he wished he didn't commit, because if he wished to commit it, he still would. Uh, That's a very interesting. Yeah, and, and it's uh, opening the door to all that is, and getting inside the head of the character like that is one of the great challenges of doing this, and it's one of the great pleasures of doing it if you feel you've succeeded at it. Yeah, I'm going to uh, bring up uh, the Canine Companions for Independence toward the end of our discussion. Uh, but I would like to ask you now about transhumanism, which is also a theme in your books, and uh, your continual warnings against that social movement. What do you see as the danger there? And and by the way, what is, you define, if you would, uh, what transhumanism is for listeners, if they haven't already heard it from me? <laughs> well, as I would put it, it's there is an entire there's an, a group of people who think we are destined to to rise above the limitations of the human form and mind, uh, and that we are going to physically transcend through advanced technology, that we will become basically cyborgs. Uh, there are some of them who say uh, our intelligence level will, be, will exceed a thousand times what it is now, or I even seem to say a million times. I don't know how you determine what a thousand times current intelligence is or a million, 
But my first, when I, I recoiled from that, because the first thing I know when I hear that is if we're a thousand times more intelligent than we are now, we are no longer human beings. I don't know what we are, but something that we are going, some creature of that case, I don't think is going to be a creature that's going to have pity or sympathy. Uh, I don't think a cyborg who's part machine and part flesh is going to, and may live for 500 years as they think they will, is going to be anything that we would recognize as human. And the values of that civilization would be more machine-like than they would be human. And they would it would be a cold and heartless and self-involved civilization. And I don't think we want to go there. I think we have to put up with the weaknesses of humanity in this world and hope for a better world where we get past that. But if we try to change this world to match it, to be that utopia, then we will lose the only world we have. And that's why I'm against transhumanism and all the things that come off it, like the idea that we can be any sex we want and, uh, and whatnot, because that will lead us to such despair uh, that, I, uh, and, and it already is, it's leading people to despair who made that decision, if you're willing to read those cases. And it's interesting, um, uh, transhumanists often uh, talk or write a lot about the need to improve intelligence. And I've noted they never talk about the need to improve love. And that's because love isn't mechanistic. Love is something that you have to work on as a virtue. And transhumanism just wants to be able to have magic pills and, and magic implants to improve life. But they don't have any concept, for example, of people with Down syndrome who are developmentally disabled, but they're the most loving, sweet, truly human beings you'll ever meet. <clears throat> I've met a number of people who have a Down syndrome child. And uh, uh, two or one, they always say it's the greatest blessing in their life. And they're not just saying that. Uh, so, yes, it's. Uh, but what transhumanism is about on the surface seems to be a hunger for a long life. Uh, but that isn't the essence of it. The essence of it is power. Yes. It's a desire for ultimate power over nature, over uh over all vicissitudes of life and over other people. Uh, you get to talk too long to uh, advocates of transhumanism and you sooner or later get to the little secret at the heart of it is they know that can never, the cost of it could never be such that it would be applied to everybody. And so it's going to lead to a class structure of people who are who have got the gifts of transhumanism, the power, and then the people they oversee. And at the heart of it, it is about power. And that's what all evil is about, is power over others of one kind or another. One thing that is not about power is dogs. <laughs> and you're a, you're a very famous dog lover. And you said actually that uh, your late dog Trixie changed your life and your writing. You've written very beautifully about Trixie and, and what she meant to you. And I know you've had dogs since Trixie. I got to meet Trixie, which was uh, uh, a, a joy. She was a remarkable dog. Um, and sometimes dogs are even crucial characters in your books. On occasion, the main protagonist. One could almost call your belief in, in dogs canine exceptionalism. 
what, what is it about dogs that has you so uh, enamored? It, it is that capacity for love uh, and connection that is so natural to them. It has to be abused out of them, actually. Uh, they're right there at, at the beginning, wanting to be part of you, with you. Uh, and uh, it, it takes somebody mistreating an animal to turn it into something else, generally speaking, or disease can do it. But uh, uh, I'm fascinated with the connection of them. Here we are, such different species in so many ways. And yet when you have a dog that you treat with respect that is part of your family, uh, it elevates you. It, it, I remember the thing that most fascinated me when we took over a first dog, which canine companions kept offering us dogs that flunked out of the system. Uh, now they say it had career changes because uh, <laughs> we don't want to offend that many of the dogs. Uh, and Trixie had actually been in the service and then had an elbow surgery and couldn't remain in service and came to us. And the th many things that astonished me. Uh, but one of them was that one thing I worried about was taking care of the dog the daily, a few walks a day, the, picking up the poop, the, you know, caring about for them when they were ill. And I thought, boy, this is going to be time consuming. And to some extent it is, but it becomes something that is, uh, I don't know, deeply satisfying. Uh, Very joyful. Yeah, dogs are dogs are, are truly remarkable. I, I have a dog too, <laughs> and uh, I consider myself staff. <laughs> so um, let's talk a little bit more about Canine Companions for Independence. Uh, you're, you're a big supporter of that school, and I'm going to put a link in, in, uh, in the notes uh, uh, to Canine uh, Companions uh, for people who might be interested either in their services or in supporting the work of Canine Companions. But tell us a little, little bit about uh, what that uh, school does and how you got involved with it. Well, Canine Companions is, uh, its head office is in uh, Santa Rosa, and it's got campuses all over the country. Uh, we work and are closely related to the one in Oceanside, California. It used to be in San Diego. And uh, it was the idea of an assistance dog was uh, came from a woman named Bonnie Bergen, uh, who now has her own group, of, uh, another group that does assistance dogs. And before this, there were only dogs for the blind. But uh, what these dogs are trying to do is multiple, multiple tasks that can mainstream somebody with severe disability, uh, somebody who's paraplegic or to some extent even quadriplegic. I've seen people who could not live alone uh, before they got a uh, canine companion's dog and then can uh, because the dog can open doors for them, uh, turn locks for them, uh, do so many tasks. If you're in a wheelchair, you can't pick up something you drop because you can't reach it but the dog can pick it up on command and put it in your hand. Uh, there are so many things these dogs can do, and it just keeps getting more and more that they can do. Uh, and they mainstream a lot of, of people and enrich a lot of lives. Uh, Bonnie, I know, once said to me, the longer I do this, 
I've come to the point of believing dogs can be taught to do anything. <laughs> and uh, I have to say, she even wrote a book called Teach Your Dog to Read. <laughs> sounds <laughs> extravagant, but what she did was take all the commands, like 60-some commands or whatever the dogs would respond to, put them on flashcards, and the dogs could learn to do the command from looking at the flashcard. Well, that is something very like reading. At least it's symbol reading. And that's a kind of astonishing uh, development in intelligence. Uh, so it's not just what dogs can do for people with severe disabilities. It is the bond that arises of, of, of uh, companionship, of friendship, of love between the, the dog and the person. And it's an astonishing thing to see uh, when you work with this organization. It's uh, when they have a graduation, it's like a couple thousand people show up at it. And, uh, and there are uh, stationed uh, tables around the room, boxes of Kleenex. Yeah. <laughs> because hundreds of boxes of Kleenex because they're needed. It's, uh, it's, it's a fascinating thing in it. Uh, it it shows you a, a way to relate to nature that is more than just being in the Sierra Club or, or wanting uh, to uh, outlaw fossil fuels or this or that. There are other ways to, to see that nature and humanity are actually in harmony and can be made so. And, uh, and I think that's one of the values of canine companions. As well. Yeah, when I was uh, researching for my book, A Rat as a Pig as a Dog as a Boy, I actually got to go to Bonnie's school in Northern California and uh, watched a puppy. And I, I believe it was uh, Trixie's uh, niece or something like that, or great niece. And this puppy, they gave a command. The puppy ran, grabbed a cloth that was tied to a refrigerator, opened the refrigerator, reached inside, grabbed a can, and brought it to the person uh, sitting in a wheelchair. And it was like your mind just blew up. It was like an incredible thing to see. It's. I know one time I saw where you could, if you were the people, a person with a disability, you could stock your refrigerator with four different cans of drink. Uh, and the dog could be taught which section of the shelf was which drink. Then you're in bed, the dog could go to the kitchen, open the refrigerator door with that dish towel tied to it, get the right drink, close the refrigerator door, and bring it back to you. That's a series of five remembered commands. That's and amazing. So it tells you uh, there's, there's some reason to believe the longer dogs have been in close bond with humans, the more intelligence they've gotten. And that's an interesting thing to dwell on. And that was also part of the training. I was actually brought into something called the petting room, I believe. And volunteers from the community were gently stroking little puppies that had just been born that were going to be trained to be service dogs. So the human and dog bond was part of that process from the very beginning of those dogs' lives. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, it's, the other thing, yeah, the other thing I noticed, uh, I, a quote, I, I don't know if I sent this to you, but uh, I, I read a, a science article and it said that they have never found the remains of dogs that don't also have the remains of humans. So we've been with dogs for a long time and that bond is really inextricable. 
Yeah, it, 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 it truly is. And, uh, and the things that it can achieve. Uh, I saw one case of a little girl who had a neuromuscular disorder and she would lose uh, command of certain muscles and her hands had closed up and she couldn't open them anymore. Her mother would have to pry open her hands to wash them. Uh, she had lost the ability to speak uh, because of the muscles associated with it. She was in a wheelchair. She got one of these dogs and at the end of the first week of treatment and her physicians had said she will never regain the ability to open her hands. Uh, no one ever has regained it with this disorder. Uh, at the end of one week of her interacting during the uh, two weeks that came in companions, she opened her hand to pet the dog. That's incredible. Just incredible. Now I'm going to, I'm going to put your career at risk. Do you like cats? I love cats. <laughs> the problem is they don't like me. Uh, they, they may actually like me. I don't know, but uh, I am so allergic to cats that if I walk into a house with a cat, I go into anaphylactic shock. I have wow. to inject myself with two EpiPens, drink a bottle of Benadryl, and have myself driven to a hospital uh, because I, I stopped being able to breathe. So as much as I like cats, they're trying to kill me. So I stay with them. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Uh, last question. Well, actually, penultimate question. I'll have one afterwards. Uh, what advice would you give to aspiring writers? Oh, there's so many. But one of the things I think is important is uh, perseverance is as important as talent. Uh, nobody wants you. They say they're always looking for new voices. Not really, because uh, new voices are hard to build into something that's profitable. Uh, and secondly, uh, so it takes perseverance. You have to stay with it. And the other thing is uh, common wisdom of publishing is common, but it isn't necessarily wisdom. So when you're, you're going to be told all sorts of things as you build your career, and you have to be very, very prudent, very judicious about heeding that advice. Like the advice I got, you can't have humor mixed into a novel that's suspenseful. Or that I was told for years my vocabulary was too big. Americans don't have a vocabulary above five or 600 words, so that's where you have to stay. That's nonsense, but it was common wisdom in publishing at one time. Once you got past that kind of vocabulary, then it was a literary fiction. That is so demeaning to the population of the of America, which is much smarter than the, the common publishing wisdom would hold. And if I had obeyed all the common wisdom of publishing, I don't know where I would have ended up, but it wouldn't be where I got to. So, and the second thing, or third thing, don't scope the market and write what's popular. Write what you're passionate about. And even if it isn't popular and you write about it well enough, it'll become popular. You'll create something that wasn't there in some small way or some large way, and it'll build its own audience. And it's the harder way to do it, but it's the more lasting way to do it. Yeah. What next for Dean Koontz? Lunch. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, 
Yeah, it's always another book. I never thought I'd be 77 signing multiple book contracts and busier than ever. But I am, and I I love it, and I'll probably do it till I fold that in the keyboard. Uh, And uh, it's a great gift to be doing something to earn a living. It's also something you love to do in your fine play. Well, Dean, thank you very much for being on Humanize. I really appreciate it. And I certainly urge readers to read all of your books because they're just terrific. Thanks very much. Thank you, Wesley, for having me there. Thanks for listening to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. Discover all the good work of the Center on Human Exceptionalism by visiting discovery.org human. We can only do this work, speaking on behalf of human life, human thriving, and our exceptional place in this world and our cosmos, with your support. We invite you to make a one-time gift today and to consider starting a monthly gift to support the Center on Human Exceptionalism and this show. Wherever you're listening to Humanize, please take a moment to rate and review the show. You matter. Your actions matter. Be bold, be exceptional, and be back soon.